Chapter Twenty of the False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Mattingly. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Twenty. Repost. The drizzle had grown thicker, the night blacker, the early morning air still more chill. But Lanyard was moving too swiftly to be affected by this last circumstance. The first he anathematized with the perfunctory bitterness of a skilled artisan who sees his work in a fair way to be obstructed by elemental depravity. Another of his trade would have termed such weather conditions ideal, and so might the lone wolf on an everyday job, but the prospect of a footing rendered insecure by rain trebled the hazards attending a plan of campaign that would brook neither revision nor delay. There was only one way to break into the house on 79th Street. This Lanyard had appreciated upon his first reconnaissance of the previous afternoon. He could have wished for more time in which to prepare and assemble tested equipment instead of relying upon chance to supply the requisite gear, but with all time at his disposal the mechanical difficulties of the problem would remain. Far from indifferent to these, Lanyard addressed himself to their conquest doggedly, and with business-like economy of motion. Shunning the public paths, he went over the park wall like a cat, sped across town through 80th Street, and so came to that plot of land upon which an apartment building was in process of erection, immediately to the north of the American headquarters of the Prussian spy system. Walled in with stone two stories deep, its gaunt skeleton of steel had been joined together as far as the seventh level. How much higher it was destined to rise was immaterial. For Lanyard's purpose it was enough that the frame had already outgrown its neighbour on the south. A litter of lumber, huge steel girders and other material narrowed the side streets to half its normal width. The sidewalk space was trampled earth, roofed with heavy planks for the protection of pedestrian heads. A passage lighted by electric bulbs widely spaced, Midway in this, an entrance to the structure was flanked by a wooden shanty, by day a tool-house, after working hours a shelter for the night watchman. This boasted one glazed window, dull with orange light. Approaching with due precaution, Lanyard peered in. The light came from a single electric bulb, and a pot-bellied sheet-iron stove glowing red. Nearby, in a chair tipped against the wall, sat the watchman, corncob pipe in hand, head drooping eyes closed, mouth ajar. A snore of the first magnitude seemed to vibrate the very walls. On the floor beside the chair stood a two-quart tin pail full of arid emptiness. Dismissing further consideration of the watchman as a factor, satisfied that the entire neighbourhood as well was sound asleep, Lanyard darted up the plank wall that led into the building, and then paused to get his bearings. Effluvia of mortar and damp lumber saluted him in an uncanny place whose darkness was slightly qualified by a faint reflected glow from the low canopy of cloud and by equally dim shafts of diffused street light. There was more or less flooring of a temporary character over a sable gulf of cellars and overhead a sullen weeping sky cross-hatched with stark black ironwork. With infinite patience Lanyard groped his way through that dark labyrinth to the foot of a ladder ascending an open shaft wherein a hoisting tackle dangled. Here he stumbled over what he had been seeking, a great coil of one-inch hempen cable 
from which he measured off roughly what he would require if his calculations were correct and something over this length he recoiled and slung over his shoulder an awkward weighty handicap nevertheless he began to climb above the third level was merely steel framework he had somewhat more light to guide him with a view of the north wall of the seventy-ninth street house bright in the glare of avenue lamps the wall was absolutely blank at the seventh level the ladders ended he stepped off upon a foot-wide beam paused to make sure of his poise and began to walk the girders with a sureness of foot any aviator might have envied at regular intervals he encountered uprights between these he had to depend upon his sense of direction and equilibrium to guide him safely across those narrow walks of steel made slippery by rain but thanks to forethought his footwork was faultless he wore shoes old well broken very soft flexible and silent the building was in the shape of a squat e with two courts facing south on this seventh level the first court was bridged by a single girder the middle of which was lanyard's immediate objective since it lacked uprights he took it cautiously on hands and knees until approximately equidistant from both ends when he straddled it took the cable from his shoulders uncoiled the length and made it fast around the girder with a clove hitch giddy work in that darkness on that greasy span fashioning by simple sense of touch the knot upon which his life was to depend half of the time prone upon the girder and fishing blindly beneath it for the rope's end with nothing but a seventy-foot drop between him and eternity not even another girder to break a fall he was now immediately opposite the minaret at an elevation of about twenty feet above the roof he wished to reach and as far away or perhaps a trifle further still he detected no signs of life about that nest of spies if the wireless were in operation its apparatus was well housed there was no sound of the spark never a glimmer of its violet flash laboriously the knot completed to his satisfaction lanyard returned via the eastern arm of the e paying out the coiled cable as he progressed working round to the north side of the court once again pausing opposite the minaret he knotted the end of the cable loosely round an upright connecting with the sixth level, let it slide down, followed it, repeated the process, and rested finally on the fifth. Now his ordeal approached a climax, which he contemplated with what calmness he could, while securing the rope beneath the arms. In another sixty seconds or less it must be demonstrated whether his dead reckoning would set him down safe and sound on the roof, or dash him against the walls of the seventy-ninth street house, to swing back and dangle impotently in mid-air till daylight and police discovered him unless escaping injury he were able to pull himself up hand over hand to the girder with one arm round the upright to prevent the sag of rope from dragging him over prematurely he essayed a final survey either the murk deceived or lanyard had judged shrewdly his feet were on an approximate level with the coping around the roof and he stood about as far from the upper girder to which the rope was hitched as that was distant from the coping one look up and round at those lowering skies duskily flushed by subdued city lights with no more ceremony lanyard released the upright and committed his body to space if the downward swing was breathless what followed was breathtaking once past the nadir of that giant swing he was borne upward by an impetus steadily and sensibly slackening. 
instant followed leaden-winged instant while the wall looming like a mountainside seemed to be toppling insensately bent upon his annihilation even so his momentum decreasing with frightful swiftness seemed possessed of demoniac desire to frustrate him after an age-long agony of doubt it became evident he was not destined to crash into the wall but not that he was to gain the coping through fractions of a second hideously protracted this last drew near nearer slowly ever more slowly and he was twisting dizzily with frantic effort he crooked an arm over the coping at a juncture when had he not acted instantly he must have swung back there was a racking wrench as though his arm were being torn from his socket at the end of a struggle even more wearing he flung his other arm across the ledge and for some time hung there at the end of an almost taut rope unable to overcome its resistance and pulled himself in over the coping stubbornly refusing to loose his grasp presently grown desperate he let go with his right hand holding fast only with the left fumbled in a pocket found his knife opened it with his teeth and began to saw at the rope round his chest strand after strand parted grudgingly till it fell away altogether and reaction from its tension threw him against the coping with such violence that he all but lost his hold dropping the knife he swept his right arm up and once more hooked his fingers over the inside of the ledge far down the knife clinked suggestively upon stone breathing deep lanyard braced knees and feet against the wall worried heaved hauled squirmed like a mad thing in the end rolled over the top and fell at length upon the roof panting trembling bathed in sweat temporarily tormented by impulses to wretch by degrees regaining physical control he sat up took his bearings and crept toward the foot of the minaret a small narrow doorway in its base was on the latch he passed through to the landing of a dark winding stairway with a dim light at the bottom of its circular well while he stood attentive intermittent stridor troubled the stillness originating at some point on the floors below the prescribed wireless was at work hearing no other sounds lanyard went on down the steps at their foot pausing to spy out through a half-open doorway to the topmost story nobody moved in the corridor he saw nothing but a line of closed doors presumably to servants quarters now however the vibrant rasp of the radio spark was perceptibly stronger and had a background of subdued noise echoes of distant voices deadened sounds of hasty footfalls now and again a heavy thump or the bang of a door moving out he commanded the length of the corridor toward one end a door stood open he could see no more of the room beyond than a narrow patch of wall fitfully illuminated by a play of violet light then a man stepped out of this operating room turning on the threshold to utter some parting observation and lanyard retired hastily to the shaft of the minaret stairway but not before recognising Velasco. A moment later, the Brazilian passed his lurking-place, walking with bended head, a worried frown darkening his swarthy countenance, and Lanyard emerged in time to see his head and shoulders vanish down a stairway at the far end of the corridor. Following with discretion, Lanyard leaned over the head of the main staircase well, looking down the three flights to the ground floor to which Velasco was descending. The house seemed veritably to hum with secret, and, to judge by the pitch of its rumour, well-nigh panic activity. 
one divined a scurrying as of rats about to desert a sinking ship. Untoward events had thrown this establishment into a state of excited confusion. Their nature Lanyard could not surmise, but their conjunction with his designs was exasperatingly inopportune. To search this place and find his man, if he were there at all, without being discovered, while its inmates buzzed about like so many startled hornets, was a fair impossibility. To attempt it was to court death. Nonetheless, he was inflexible in determination to go on, to push his luck to its extremity, by sheer force, to bend fortuity to his service, and suffer without complaint whatever the consequences of its recoil. Yet, even as he advanced afoot to begin the descent, he withdrew it. On the ground floor, a door closing with a resounding crash had proved the signal for an outburst of expostulant, acrimonious voices, some half a dozen men giving angry tongue at one and the same time, their roars of polysyllabic gutturalisms fusing into utterly unintelligible clamour. One thought of a mutiny in a German madhouse. Moment after moment passed, the squall persisting with unmitigated viciousness. If now and again it subsided momentarily, it was only into uglier growls and swiftly to rise once more to high frenzy of incoherence. Two of the disputants appeared in the square frame of the staircase well, oddly foreshortened figures, brandishing wild arms, one of them Velasco, the other a man whom Lanyard failed to identify, seemingly united in common anger directed at the head of some person invisible. Abruptly, with a gesture of almost homicidal fury, the Brazilian darted out of sight, the other followed. Then the object of their wrath took to the stairs, stopping at the rail of the first landing, and gesticulating savagely over the heads of his audience, Velasco and the others returning amid a knot of fellows to bay round the newel post. His voice, full-throated, cried them all down. Ekstrom's deep and resonant voice, domineering over the uproar, hectoring one after another into sullen silence. In the beginning, employing nothing but terms and phrases of insolence and objurgation, untranslatable, when he had secured a measure of attention, he delivered a short address in tones of unqualified contempt. I will have obedience, he stormed. Let no one misunderstand my status here. I am come direct from His Majesty the Emperor, with full power and authority, to command and direct affairs which you have individually, collectively, proved yourselves either unfit or unable to cope with. What I do, I do in my absolute discretion, with the full sanction and confidence of the Kaiser. He who questions my judgment or my actions questions the wisdom of the All-Highest. Let it be clearly understood I am answerable to no one under God but myself and my imperial master. Henceforth be good enough to hold your tongues or take the consequences, and be damned to you all. Briefly he stood glowering down at their upturned faces, and then sneered and turned away. Come along, O'Reilly, he said. Fetch the woman, and give no more heed to swine-dogs. His hand slipped up the rail to the first floor, vanished. If O'Reilly followed with the woman mentioned, both kept back from the rail, and so out of Lanyard's field of vision. The group at the foot of the stairs moved away, grumbling profanely. At once Lanyard began to descend rapidly, and without care to avoid detection. One flight down he met face to face a manservant, evidently a footman with an armful of clothing which he was conveying from one chamber to another. The fellow stopped short, jaw dropping, eyes popping, 
whereupon Lanyard paused and addressed him in German with a manner of overbearing contempt, that is to say, in character. "'You're wanted upstairs in the radio room,' he said. "'At once!' The servant bleated one word of protest. "'But—' "'Be silent. Do as I bid you. It is an emergency. Drop those things and go. Do you hear, imbecile?' Completely cowed and cheated, the man obeyed literally, letting his burden of garments fall to the floor and bounding hurriedly up the stairs. Another flight was negotiated without misadventure. On this floor as well, servants were flitting busily to and fro, but none favoured the adventurer with the least attention. Midway down the third flight, he pulled up to one side of the landing and reconnoitred. It was on the next floor below, the first above the street, that Ekstrom had stopped. But in what quarter thereof? The exigency forbade the risk of one false turn. If Lanyard were to take Ekstrom unawares, it must be at the first cast. From the ground floor came semi-coherent snatches of surly comment, like growls of a thunderstorm passing off into the distance. At a time such as this, secret service snapping at our heels, base on the vineyard discovered, Oprinton raided, Sophie Veringroder under arrest, God knows whether she will hold her tongue. Trust her, but this ass bringing a woman here, putting all our necks into a halter. Immediately opposite the foot of the stairway, on the first story, a door opened. O'Reilly came alertly forth, closed the door behind him, paused, fished in his pocket for a cigarette case, lighted and inhaled with deep appreciation. Meantime, eavesdropping on the utterances below with his head cocked to one side and a malicious smile shadowing his handsome Irish face. In his own good time, he shrugged an indifferent shoulder, thrust his hands into his pockets, and sauntered coolly on down the stairs. The moment he disappeared, Lanyard went into action. In two bounds cleared the landing and stairs, in another threw himself upon the door. It opened readily. Entering, he put his back to it, with his left hand groped for, found and turned a key, his right holding ready the automatic pistol he had taken from the lockers of the U-boat. The room was a combination of administrative bureau and study, very handsomely if somewhat over-decorated and furnished, with an atmosphere as distinctively German as that of a Bierstuber, the sombreness of its colour scheme lending weight to its array of massive desks, tables, chairs, bookcases and lounges. Between great draped windows and an impressive chimney-piece opposite, beside a broad long desk in a straight-backed chair, sat a woman, gagged bound as to her wrists, strips of cloth which had but lately bound ankles as well on the floor about her feet. That woman was Cecilia Brooke. Ekstrom stood behind her, in the act of loosening the knots which held the gag secure. For a space of thirty seconds, transfixed by the apparition of his enemy, he didn't stir other than to raise weaponless hands in deference to the pistol trained upon his head. But the blood ebbed from his face, leaving it a ghastly mask in which shone the eyes of a man who sees certain death closing in upon him and is powerless to combat it, even to die fighting for life. And his lips curled back in a snarl, neither of contempt nor of hatred, but of terror. And for as long Lanyard remained as motionless, rooted in a despondency of thwarted hopes no less profound than the despair of the Prussian, apprehending what that one could not yet guess, that once more, and now certainly for the last time, vengeance was denied him, 
the fulfilment of all his labours and their sole purpose snatched from his grasp. The instincts of a killer were not his. Barring injudicious attempt to summon aid or take the offensive, Ekstrom was safe from injury at the hands of Michael Lanyard. His cunning, his favour in the countenance of fortune, or whatever it was that had enabled him to make the girl his prisoner and bring her here, bade fair to prove his salvation. Deep in Lanyard's consciousness, an echo stirred of half-forgotten words. Vengeance is mine. A sense of frustration brewed a hopelessness as stark as that of a browbeaten child. A blackness seemed to be settling down upon his faculties. A mist wavered momentarily before his eyes. He gulped convulsively, swallowing what had almost been a sob. But he spoke in a voice positively dispassionate. Keep your hands up. Lanyard removed and pocketed the key crossed to the middle of the room without once letting his gaze waver from the face of the Prussian, passed behind him, planted the muzzle of the pistol beneath Ekstrom's shoulder-blade, and methodically searched him, finding and putting aside on the desk one automatic, nothing else. Stand aside. The almost puerile measure of his disappointment was betrayed in the thrust with which he shouldered Ekstrom out of the way, so forcibly that the man was sent staggering wildly half a dozen paces. Don't move, assassin. Pardon, mademoiselle, one moment, Lanyard muttered, with his one free hand undoing the gag. He made slow work of that, fumbling while watching Ekstrom with unremitting intentness, hoping against hope that his enemy might make one false move, one only, by some infatuate endeavour to turn the tables, excuse his killing. But Ekstrom would not. Recovery of his equilibrium had been coincident with the shock administered at his hardihood, and sense of security by Lanyard's entrance. He stood now in a pose of insouciant grace, hands idly clasped before him, disdain glimmering in languid-lidded eyes, contempt in the set of his lips, an ensemble eloquent of brazen effrontery, the outgrowth of perception of the fact that Lanyard, being what he was, could neither shoot him down in cold blood, nor, with the Brook girl present, even attempt to injure him compunctions unassembled in the make-up of the Bosch, therefore, when discovered in men of other races, at once despicable and ridiculous. The gag came away. Mademoiselle has not been injured? Lanyard inquired solicitous. The girl coughed and gasped, shaking her head, enunciating with difficulty and little better than a husky whisper. Roughly handled, nothing worse. Lanyard's face burned as if his blood were molten mercury. Nothing worse? appreciation of what handling she must have suffered if she had resisted at all before those beasts could have bound her, excited an indignation from whose light, as it blazed in Lanyard's eyes, even Ekstrom winced. The hand was tremulous with which he sought to loose her wrists, so much so that she could not but notice. "'Don't mind me. Look to that man,' she begged. "'Leave me to unfasten these with my teeth. He can't be trusted for a single instant.' "'Mademoiselle,' Lanyard mumbled, instinctively employing the French idiom, you have reason. For an instant only he hesitated, swayed this way and that by the maddest of impulses, then resigned himself absolutely to their ascendancy. This goes beyond all bounds, he said in an undertone. Deliberately leaving the Englishwoman to free herself according to her suggestion, forgetful indeed for the moment that she was not altogether free, he moved to the desk and left his own automatic there beside Ekstrom's. Mademoiselle, he said mechanically, without looking at the girl, 
without power to perceive aught else in the world but the white, evil face of his enemy. For what I am about to do, I beg you forgive me of your charity. I can endure no more. It is too much. He strode past her. She twisted in her chair and then rose, following him with wide eyes of alarm above her hands, whose bonds her teeth worried without rest. Ekstrom had not stirred, though one flash of pure exultation had transfigured his countenance on comprehension of Lanyard's purpose. Thanks to the silly scruples of this animal, one more chance for life was granted him. Nor would the Prussian give an inch when Lanyard paused, confronting him squarely within arm's length. Ekstrom, the adventurer began in a voice lacking perceptible inflection. What is between you and me needs no recounting. You know it too well, I likewise. It is my wish and my intention to kill you with my two hands. Nothing can prevent that, not even what you count upon, my reluctance, to you incomprehensible, to commit an act of violence in the presence of a woman. But because Miss Brooke is here, because you have brought her here by force, because you are what you are, and so have treated her insolently, before we come to our final accounting, you shall get down upon your knees and ask her pardon. He saw no yielding in the eyes of the Prussian, only arrogance, and when he paused he was answered in one phrase of the gutters of Berlin, couched in the imagery of its lowest boozing kens, so unspeakably vile in essence and application that Lanyard heard it with an incredulity almost stupefying, almost not altogether. It was barely spoken when those lips that framed it were crushed by a blow of such lightning delivery that though he must have been prepared for it, Ekstrom's guard was still lowered as he reeled back, lost footing, and went to his knees. Panting, snarling, uttering teeth and blasphemy, the Prussian recoiled like a serpent, gathered himself together, and launched headlong at Lanyard, only to be met full tilt by a second blow and a third, each more merciless than its predecessor, beating him down once more. This time Lanyard did not wait for him to come back for punishment, but closed in, catching him as he strove to rise, meeting each fresh effort with ruthless accuracy, battering him into insanity of despair, so that Ekstrom came back again and again without thought, animated only by frenzied brute instinct, to find the throat of his tormentor, and ever and ever failing, till at length he crumpled, and lay crushed and writhing, and then subsided into insensibility, was quite still but for heaving lungs and the spasmodic clutchings of his broken and ensanguined fingers. With a start, a broken sigh, a slight movement of the hand interpreting a crushing sense of the futility of human passion, Lanyard relaxed, drew back from standing over his antagonist, abstractedly found a handkerchief and dried his hands, of a sudden so inexpressibly shamed and degraded in his own sight that he dared not look the girl's way, but stood with hang-dog air, avoiding her regard. Yet, could he have mustered up heart, he might have surprised in her eyes a light to lift him out from this slough of humiliation, to obliterate chagrin in a flood of wonder and misgivings. When, however, he did after a moment turn to her, that look was gone, replaced by one that reflected something of his own apprehension, for a heavy hand was hammering on the study door, and more than one voice on the other side was calling on Carl to open. Either the servant whom Lanyard had met and victimised on his way downstairs had given the alarm, or else the noise of the encounter within the study had brought that pack of spies to the door, wildly demanding admission. 
Steadied by one swift exchange of alarmed glances with the girl, Lanyard hastily reviewed the room, seeking some avenue of escape. None offered but the windows. He ran to them, tore back their draperies, and found them closed with shutters of steel and padlocked. Simultaneously the din at the door redoubled. With a worried shake, Lanyard crossed to the chimney-piece, ducked his head and stepped into its huge fireplace. One upward glance sufficed to dash his hopes. Here was no way out. Arduous though feasible, immediately above the fireplace the flue narrowed so that not even the most active man of normal stature might hope to negotiate its ascent. He returned with only a gesture of disconcertion to answer the girl's look of appeal. "'Can we do nothing?' she asked, raising her voice a trifle to make it heard above the tumult in the corridor. "'There's no help for it, I'm afraid,' he said, going to the desk and taking up the pistols. "'Nothing to do but shoot our way out if we can. "'Take this,' he added, offering her one of the weapons which she accepted without spirit. "'If you can't get your own consent to use it, give it to me when I've emptied the other.' She breathed a dismayed, yes, and wonderingly consulted his face, since he did not stir other than thoughtfully to replace his pistol on the desk, and then stood staring at his soot-smeared palms. "'What is it?' she demanded nervously. "'Why do you hesitate?' As one fretted by inconsequential questions, he merely shook his head, glanced sidelong at the unconscious Prussian, again with calculation toward the door. This he saw quivering under repeated blows. With brusque decision, he said, get a chair, brace it beneath the doorknob, please, and leaving her without more explanation, turned back to the fireplace. Motionless, in dumb confusion, the girl stood staring after him till, roused by a blow of such splintering force as to suggest that an axe had been brought into play upon the door, then ran to a ponderous club chair, and with considerable exertion, managed to trundle it to the door and tip it over, wedging its back beneath the knob. By this time it had become indisputably patent that an axe was battering the panels. But the door, in character of the room, was a substantial piece of workmanship, and needed more than a few blows, even of an axe, to break down its barrier of solid oak. She looked round to discover Lanyard kneeling beside Ekstrom, insanely, so it seemed to the girl, engaged in blackening the upper half of the man's face, with a handful of soot. Unconsciously, uttering a little cry of distress, she sped to his side and caught his shoulder with an importunate hand. "'In heaven's name, Monsieur Duchemin, what are you doing? Is this a time for childishness?' He responded with a smile of boyish mischief so genuine that her doubts of his reason seemed all too well confirmed. "'Making up my understudy,' he said simply, and brushing his hands over the rug to rid them of superfluous soot, Lanyard rose. Please go back and stand by the door, on the side of the hinges. I'll be with you in one minute. Resigned to humour this lunatic whim, what else could she do? The girl retreated to the position designated, and watched with ever darker doubts of his sanity, while Lanyard hurriedly drew the shells from his automatic, and carefully placed its butt in the slack grasp of Ekstrom's fingers. And then, lifting from a nearby table a great cut-glass bowl of flowers, the adventurer inverted it over Ekstrom's body. Expending its full force upon the man's chest, that miniature deluge splashed widely, wetting his face, half filling his open mouth. Some of the soot was washed away, but not a great deal. Enough stuck fast to suit Lanyard's purpose. Roused by that cool shock, half strangled as well, Ekstrom coughed violently, squirmed, spat out a mouthful of water, 
lifted on an elbow, still more than half-dazed. Joining the girl by the door, Lanyard saw the Prussian sit up and glare blankly round the room, a figure of tragic fun. Drenched, woefully disfigured, eyes rolling wildly in the wide spaces round them, which Lanyard had left unblackened. Swinging the club chair away from the door, the adventurer placed it with its back to the room. Get down behind that, he indicated shortly, and drew the key from his pocket. Don't show yourself for your life, and let me have that pistol, please. A bright triangular wedge of steel broke through one of the panels as he fitted and turned the key in the lock. His wits clearing, Ekstrom saw him, and with a howl of fury staggered to his feet, clutching the unloaded pistol and endeavouring to level it for steady aim. Simultaneously, Lanyard turned the knob and let the door fly open, remaining beside the chair that hid the girl. A knot of spies, O'Reilly and Velasco among them, whirled into the room, pulled up at sight of that strange, grim figure, disguised beyond all recognition by its half-mask of black facing and menacing them with a pistol. O'Reilly fired in the next breath, his shot echoed by half a dozen so closely bunched as to resemble the rattle of a mitrailleuse. At the first report, the pistol dropped from Ekstrom's grasp. He carried a hand vaguely to his throat, staggered a single step, uttered a strange moan, and fell forward, his body fairly riddled, his death little short of instantaneous. While the fuselage was still resounding, Lanyard, seizing the girl's wrist, unceremoniously dragged her from behind the chair and thrust her through the door, retreating after her with his face to the roomful, his pistol ready. None of that lot paid him any heed, the attention of all wholly absorbed by the tragedy their violent hands had wrought. Velasco, the first to stir, ran forward and dropped to his knees beside the dead man. Others followed. Gently Lanyard drew the door to, locked it on the outside, and at the sound of a choking cry from Cecilia Brooke, whirled smartly round, prepared if need be to make good his promise to clear with gunplay a way to the street, though opposed by every inmate of the establishment. But the first face he saw was Crane's. The secret service man stood within a yard. To him, as to a rock of refuge, Cecilia Brooke had flown. To his hands she was clinging like a frightened child, trying to speak, failing because she choked on sobs and gasps of horror. Behind him, on the landing at the head of the staircase, running up from below, ascending to the upper stories, were a score or more of men of sturdy and business-like bearing, and indubitably American stamp. Of these two were herding into a corner a little group of frightened German servants. Lanyard's stare of astonishment was met by Crane's twisted smile. My friend, he said, as quietly as anyone could, with his accent of a quizzical buzzsaw, I sure got to hand it to you. Every time I try to pull anything off on the dead quiet, you beat me to it clean. Everywhere I think you ain't and can't be, that's just where you are. But I ain't complaining, I got to admit, if you hadn't staged your act to occupy the minds of those gents in there, we might have had a lot more difficulty raiding this joint. Quickly, he wound an arm round the waist of Cecilia Brooke, when, without warning, she swayed blindly and would have fallen. Here now, he protested, that's no way to do. Why, she's flickered out. Well, Monsieur Dumachin Lanyard Ember, to a man up a tree this looks like your job. You take this little lady off my hands and see her home, and I'll just naturally try and finish what I started, or what you did. For son, I gotta give you credit. 
You sure are one grand little trouble-hound. End of chapter 20